Hello everyone, I'm Duncan Rayburn and you are very welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. This is episode one in a new series we're starting, which I'm calling Reworlding. In this series, we're going to get to all kinds of things to do with what's going on when faith and understanding are in transition, when we've been uprooted and are in the process of hoping to be replanted. I've spoken before here on this sort of thing, on going through changes in faith and understanding, on losing and reclaiming faith, on discovering in various ways how faith can be torn apart and put back together. Still, I figured it was high time I took a good long look at this issue again through fresh eyes and with hopefully a little more wisdom. No matter who you are and no matter at which point in your own journey of faith you happen to be, I wanted to be able to say something that would be helpful for making sense of what's going on when faith is in transition. Because faith is always in transition and we are always learning. I think of some conversations I've had recently with various people, strangers and close friends, who are at very different stages of life and who are all rethinking what they know and reconfiguring what they believe. And what's become very clear to me is how many people seem to lack the resources for knowing what's happening and knowing how to handle all of it. To me, the fact that faith and understanding go through changes is nothing to freak out about, but maybe this is not something everyone knows. Uh, and maybe not everyone knows what's going on and why freaking out is not necessary. Along with this realization, it struck me that while a lot is resolved for me and while I'm much more comfortable by now with the fact that faith is a process, I've not yet shared some of the lessons I've learned in grappling with this issue. And I happen to think there are lessons that are possibly very helpful and transformative for anyone who has experienced or is still experiencing the difficulties and aftermath of all kinds of change. Or maybe this stuff could be very helpful for anyone who happens to be a deep and complex thinker on matters of life, the universe, and other existential crises. Maybe you're in a similar place to me, a little more settled and stable in your beliefs and quite comfortable with ambiguities and doubts. Well, in that case, Maybe you can consider this series as a way to reflect on where you are and what you've been through. It could even turn out to be a kind of preparation for the next stage of your journey and my journey. So what are we going to talk about here? Well, let's just say that over the course of the next who knows how many episodes, I haven't yet figured that out, we're going to be diving into all kinds of interesting things. Belief, inworldedness, consciousness, perceptions, models of understanding, experiences, plausibility structures, fundamentalism, relativism, perspectivism, how media shape our ideas, relationships, doubt, skepticism, paradigms, paradigm shifts. We're going to be looking at spiral dynamics as well, personalities, psychologies, communication, mediation, language, miscommunication, morality, ethics, and even more than this. But all of these things, these many things that seem to be scattered all over the place, fall under one five-syllable word, interpretation. I want to explore how, from various angles, in all of its wonderful, bewildering, mystifying, exciting, enthralling, and sometimes terrifying glory, the issue of interpretation is not our enemy, but is our friend. 
I know, of course, that it's an issue that can produce immense agony and anxiety when we're in the midst of a contest of interpretations, when we're battling out how different people perceive different things. But if we properly understand how interpretation works, including why we might arrive at different interpretations, we will all be better off. We will be more at peace with ourselves and with others and with the world. And I think that we'll also be better able to cope with and handle and negotiate the tensions involved in being in and dealing with transitions in faith and understanding, or or maybe even transitions of any kind. So what I'm going to do in this series is tackle philosophical hermeneutics, which is less of a scary subject than it may sound to you. This just means that I'm going to explore some dimensions of how we find and make meaning and What's going on when we experience that moment of connection or insight that we call interpretive understanding? What affects our getting it or not getting it? What shapes what and how we believe and how we might shift from believing one thing to believing another? To get us going, I want to introduce a concept to you. And that concept is a word that you will all know very well, but which I'm going to reframe slightly. It's a concept that will help you to understand why I am titling this series Reworlding. The concept is the concept of world. Now, I expect that a whole range of images might come to mind when you hear that, that word world. Maybe you have a picture of a globe or a picture of our actual world, planet Earth, or some other world, whether real or imaginary. But when I use the concept here in this series, I mean something very specific. I mean the entire interconnected matrix of the meaningful within and without us that forms our capacity to understand. It's not just a thing, some object of consciousness, but is a process of gathering together fragments and situating those fragments within a complete whole. It's more like an entire field of perception shaped by being and beings woven together into a pre-conceptual, proto-conceptual, and just plain conceptual network of meaning, it, it gives us a sense or promise of a kind of unified reality. We are likely to think of the notion of a world as something we look at. But when I use the word, most of what I mean is the world we look from. It's not so much the stuff of our materiality and our experience, lampshades, trees, roads, supermarkets, and the like, but is the general shape of our understanding as beings who live in the world. It's helpful to think of the concept of a world as a verb rather than as a noun. To live in the literal, physical, objective world is to world it and to be worlded by it. I do not just look at objects in the world, I look through them and with them. But there will be more on that idea as the series progresses. In other words, to live in the literal physical objective world is not so much about imposing our understanding on the world as it is about being given meaning and coherence within the world. We are we are worlded beings. We are selves existing always in and from this worlding. We feel ourselves being put together when we are offered this world of meaning and coherence, which is to say, when we are worlded, we are gathered together into a deep and abiding sense of belonging to the world of meaning. We feel, in a very deep way, 
that wholeness is possible and that we are part of that whole even when we don't fully understand it and even when we feel very fragmented. When we are worlded, life is something lived from wholeness towards wholeness. Coherence is something we can find, even if it is a fragile thing that can be challenged and even taken from us. There are ways to be grounded and rooted even when alienation threatens. When others reflect this world of meaning back to us and we find our sense of belonging confirmed, it's as if those threats of disturbance are kept at bay long enough for us to just relax into the comfort of the truth that we have come to know and love. We belong here in this world of meaning. And we should be wary of those things, ways of being and talking that rip our sense of belonging completely away from us. Although we should also be mindful that being too dismissive of such things can also be a problem. Most of the time, our sense of the meaningful, our sense of meaningful coherence is deeply and profoundly rooted in a sense of belonging. If you ever experience your faith in jeopardy, notice the ways that this is bound up in your sense that your belonging in the world of meaning is threatened. In all of this, my point is that on the whole, worlding can be thought of as largely positive. It reflects a positive, uplifting experience of being at home in the context we find ourselves in. Worlding is about integrating us and our environments, giving us a frame from and within which we can paint the picture of our lives. Yes, we might be in a world that limits the frame in unhealthy ways, but the experience of being worlded is still mostly positive. Ultimately, though, for our in-worldedness to be truly positive, our worlding also needs to make room for the negative. The flip side to the idea of worlding that we can call de-worlding. If the concept of a world, as I've described it, makes some sense, then this concept of de-worlding should be fairly intuitively understandable. De-worlding is when the world of meaning disintegrates, when the matrix of the meaningful through and from which we understand things is tested or attacked or compromised in some way. And when that happens, we too become destabilized and unsettled. Because we are worlded selves, selves whose identity is bound up in our worlds, when coherence is lost, when the frame begins to disintegrate, the picture we have painted, the picture that is in some degree made up of our very selves, that picture disintegrates too. This can happen in various ways, and some of you know them well. Say someone you love dies, or a relationship that you thought would last falls apart, or a friendship you found support in is now filled with antagonisms. Because people are part of the world through which we find meaning, they are vital for our sense of groundedness. And so it's fair that when specific people are no longer there to be relied upon, whether for understandable or not so understandable reasons, we are de-worlded. Sometimes our de-worlding can happen when someone new enters the picture too. I can think of no more astonishing, wonderful thing than becoming and being a parent, but to say that parenting is not a consistent source of de-worlding is also to miss some of the point of it. The birth of a child is a cataclysm or an apocalypse. But there are less apocalyptic examples too. Let's say you've moved to a different place, gone to another church or changed from one workplace to another. The experience of moving is a common one and we can all relate to it. Maybe you're living in a different place, perhaps even a, a different country, and 
while the initial move may have been exciting or thrilling, you suddenly find yourself completely alone, stranded as if on a desert island, ill-equipped for this new world of meaning. The grass looked greener from where you used to be, but now you realize that you were never an isolated self, but have always been, by virtue of your humanity, a worlded self. And through various circumstances and for various reasons, you are no longer part of the world you came from. And then there's the example of undergoing a crisis of faith or a transition of faith, which, as I've suggested, may be part of moving or even living in various worlds, which is something many of us have to cope with in this complex era we live in. Part of the trauma of this shifting faith is that it is part of being deworlded in other ways. This can happen when you're reading a book of philosophy or theology, for instance, and it may suddenly dawn on you that the world inside the book makes more sense than the world you actually live in. One world, that of the book, collides with another, the world you live in, and you are, for a moment or maybe much longer than a moment, de-worlded. In all of these examples, pay attention to the interplay of worlding and de-worlding, this is never just a matter of exchanging one set of beliefs for another, and it is never just a case of worlding being good and deworlding being bad. It seems that both worlding and deworlding are necessary for the work of life, which is the work of creation. To that work we can give the name reworlding. You could think of all of this along the lines of the archetypal hero's journey that Joseph Campbell writes about. Every journey, every story in a way is about the same thing, a journey away from home and a journey back home. Think of Homer's Odyssey or Tolkien's The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Every hero must leave his or her home base to seek the so-called elixir of life, which is located in the underworld. The hero must descend into hell, fight the dragon of deworlding, and then return home, transformed, having reworlded himself or herself, and... The hero needs to also be capable of reworlding the world that he or she came from. We all go through this, no matter where we come from or who we are. This is archetypal because it is part of the universal human experience. The dialectic of worlding and deworlding and the resultant reworlding are things we should expect if we want to align ourselves with the universal story of humanity. The Genesis narrative in the Bible contains a sense of the fact that reality is comprised of two things, order and chaos, which are roughly equivalent to what I've called worlding and deworlding. In the beginning, we are told in the very first verse of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens here refer to the potential that the invisible realm of meaning has to inform the visible realm of earth. This potential needs to be actualized, however, because right at the start we are also told in the second verse of Genesis 1 that the earth was formless and void, which is to say there was no world yet, even though the stuff that will comprise the world was there. There is no gestalt, there is just a cosmic mess. Heaven hasn't yet made earth intelligible. And then God speaks, let there be light. Maybe that's another way of saying, let there be clarity. 
It seems to me to be a statement about our phenomenological experience when what was once in darkness shows itself or shines forth as the word phenestai from where we get the word phenomenology suggests. When God speaks light, what was dark, uninformed, unintelligible, yet to be worlded, still unworlded materiality, gains form. It gains intelligibility and worldedness. As the creation narrative goes, God re-worlds that wildness and waste. As the creation narrative goes, it's in the dialectic of worlding and de-worlding that re-worlding can happen. God gives form to what is formless and he fills the void. Later on, as the story goes, God makes humanity, this very strange combination of dirt and spirit. And he makes humanity in his own image. And this is a definite sign that humanity is meant to be the mediator between the heavens and the earth, the mediator between worlding and de-worlding. To be human is to be a re-worlder in a way. We're here to pull down heaven to inform earth and we're here to lift up earth to reach into the heavens. This all goes on in the midst of a battle between the worlding and de-worlding that is part of the mandate of humanity, which we'll be confronted with throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. In the most ancient of texts, then, we have a kind of confirmation that both of these things will be part of life in the midst of our double-sided heavenly-earthly reality. The deepening of meaning that is re-worlding is found in the tension between both, not just one or the other, it's both worlding and de-worlding, although we may have a tendency to gravitate towards one or the other. Without the heavens there is no form, and without earth there is nothing there to be formed. Without heaven we are just stuff, bodies composed of randomly clumped together particles. Without earth we are ghosts, and our bodies are really just shells. We might therefore find some meaning in worldedness alone, or even in de-worldedness, but the depth of meaning will only truly become apparent to us when we fully embrace the tension between the two, when we leave our worlds, descend into the de-worlded underworld, or hell in a way, and take those underworld lessons back into the world we come from. This is profoundly telling of what it means to be experiencing meaning, or even meaninglessness. Sometimes you will feel yourself created, feel your world put together or put back together. But sometimes, yes, you will feel yourself torn apart. But one of the stranger aspects of the biblical narrative is the idea that the chaos is also part of the story. Even as Nietzsche says, one must have chaos within oneself to give birth to a dancing star. In other words, we must be able to understand and grapple with our own de-worlding if we are to produce the kind of light and clarity we hope for. The creation story in Genesis 1 continues to explore how worlding happens against the unworlded or de-worlded wildness of earth. And it does so first by describing how God forms things in the first three days and then describing how he fills things in the following three days. He forms by separating light and dark, day and night, ocean and sky, land and sea. Then he fills these with all kinds of plants and animals and ultimately with people. And then he rests. There is no meaning, it seems, without rest. 
And as the writer of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews says, there is no meaning without entering into God's rest. Reworlding involves finding the sweet spot of rest within the egotistical tussle between worlding and deworlding. In all of this, one of the great lessons of Genesis, and it's an idea that comes back again and again in the scriptures, is that what is primary and fundamental is our inworldedness. Even with the human propensity to desire complete deworldedness over and against worldedness, it is our placedness or plantedness within the world of meaning that should take priority. This is very different from the message that many of us get today. One way to understand modernity and postmodernity is that they prioritize deworlding over our inworldedness. The so-called invention of the individual in the modern era is one sign of this. The idea that we are all separate, autonomous subjects. Postmodernity, of course, emphasizes something else. We are all separate, heteronymous subjects. Modernity and postmodernity share a distrust of history and tradition, and in both there is an isolated self wandering about the earth in a kind of state of alienation. Generally speaking, of course, modernity overstates the agency of the ego and postmodernity overstates the passivity of the ego. But both tend to insist that each of us is, in some very intimate and ultimate sense even, isolated and alone. And this means, among other things, that we are framed as needing to make our way through life without roots, without Reworlding. You can take almost anything in the world today and ask about how it relates to our inworldedness and our deworldedness. What you will discover is that there is a great deal in our world today that sets up a smaller world of meaning against a much larger and deeper world of meaning. Even in the way that people handle complex ethical problems, there is a tendency for people to view those problems in a kind of completely isolated fashion as matters of some naive human autonomy or private rights at the expense of the social context of human agents and at the expense of the larger human story. If we don't acknowledge and live in accordance with our inworlded natures, we will perpetuate chaos instead of participating in the divine act of reworlding. This is not to say that de-worlding is always wrong or bad or a sign of corruption, though. It is both inevitable and often necessary. We all fall short of the big picture simply by virtue of the fact that we are finite beings with finite understandings. But this de-worlding is also, in a manner of speaking, part of the world of meaning. And its significance for us will be misunderstood if we try to de-world our de-worlding. Our search should always be for the larger world of meaning, the deeper, wider, truer world of meaning within which we live and move and have our being. We will not be able to fully understand how we are shaped and changed if we refuse to acknowledge the role of where we come from and the necessity of finding our ways back home, of, of finding where we are going. We may want to start to look at the ways that our current home, our kind of current world of meaning speaks of a larger home, of a heaven within which our earth exists. That faith will undergo change is a certainty, but to assume that it is merely a simple matter of rejecting one thing and embracing another is to profoundly misunderstand what is going on. But 
This is all something that needs more time to unpack. And it's my aim in this series to do exactly that. As I've already hinted, this process is suggested already in the earliest parts of the book of Genesis. And in fact, when you read the scriptures carefully and as a kind of sacramental icon, something profound starts to become apparent. The Bible itself not only predicts, but supports and explains the vitality of having faith and understanding be in transition. The Bible offers us clues into who we are, what we are meant to be, and what it means to live towards greater wholeness and self-transcendence. Which is all to say, things are going to get interesting, and so I really hope you will join me for the journey. At times it's going to be tough because we are going to need to descend into the hell of de-worldedness, but the end, I think, should be quite redemptive. In the book of Revelation, Christ speaks these words as a reminder that the work of the transcendent divinity is always the work of creation. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. If you stick around, maybe some of what I will say will clue you into how this making things new looks. In the end, we will all be reworlded. And clues to what that might look like are right here in the midst of our worlding and our deep.